you can't can't really address food security without considering climate change, without considering the environment, without considering biodiversity loss, water resilience, and really going back to core human elements of human behaviour and how, how we share the resources that are on the planet. Welcome to Nourishing Matters to Chew On, a podcast that takes its cue from big picture, healthy and sustainable food system agendas and digs in to explore their implications and how they are landing here in Australia. I'm Anthea Fawcett, founder of Foodswell, sustainability advocate and a farmer's daughter from New South Wales. Join me on a weekly journey across our food and agricultural landscapes as I speak with inspiring people who are tackling parts of the wicked puzzle to enable change toward a healthier, more sustainable, fair and resilient food system and environment. I acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connections to land, water and culture. I acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. I'm speaking with Dr. Anna Greta Hunter, an eminent cardiologist who has many interests that include the social determinants of health and the broader environmental context and writing and speaking about health and climate change. Anna Greta, welcome and thank you for joining me in conversation. Hi, Anthea. Thank you very much for having me on. It's really great to be with you. So, so many people are concerned about our food system's health and sustainability. You're now chair of the Commission for the Human Future, congratulations, who recently released a report the need for strategic food policy in Australia. Um, Anna Greta, you wear so many hats. In addition to your everyday job as a cardiologist and physician, you're also a senior clinical lecturer for the Australian National University Medical School, a member of the Climate and Health Alliance, and you're on the Friends Advisory Board for the National Rural Health Alliance, an organisation whose work I love. Before we talk about the report, Can I ask you very broadly how you personally feel about the big picture of our current food systems and the health of our environments? What perhaps is currently most inspiring you in your current research and outreach work? I should probably start by putting a caveat over this, which is that I'm not an expert in food policy. Um, I certainly have an active interest in in my professional life. And I also think that uh, as we work our way through uh, ideas of, of catastrophic and existential threats, and we begin to really actively consider the, the future for humanity or our human future, uh, that the food system is a microcosm through which we can see the potential challenges and the potential solutions that will make uh, our future a more comprehensively better place, both for ourselves and for the planet on which we live. Can you tell us, to kick off, about the Commission for the Human Future, what it is and how it sees its role in contributing to change? Well, the Commission for the Human Future came from a conversation uh, between emeritus professors and a number of graduate students at ANU in 2017. Um, It was based on some work that had been done around the world on existential and catastrophic threat, and particularly a report or a book that had been written around that time by Julian Cribb, a science writer many people might know. And so the the emeritus group uh, and, and associated others came together to talk about what was recognised to be the human-induced catastrophic and existential risks that would really pose a significant threat or barrier to the best possible human future, to the capacity for humanity to survive and thrive. 
And so, so that was highlighting um, the, the human-induced threats to our future, so environmental threats like climate change and pollution, food security, water security, biodiversity loss, the, the technological threats like the unregulated or poorly understood use, I think, of technology or particularly artificial intelligence, and the human behaviour issues like war and particularly nuclear war as a potentially uh, existential threat to humanity, uh, really wiping out our human future. And so, so it was this combination of anthropomorphic or human-induced uh, threats and challenges and the fact that these things are interrelated. And when you think about climate change, which is one area where I guess I, I do spend quite a lot of time as a clinician, the flow-on effects from climate change and the interrelationship between climate change and these other threats and dynamics, so food security or water security, biodiversity, uh, issues around in environmental pollution, and then the human behaviour costs if, if as we face increasing challenges to do with our environmental change as the climate is evolving, is human behaviour more likely to lead to conflict and to, to increasing uh, challenges around the world? So is the likelihood of war, in fact, changed by the presence of climate change? And there's some work on that, particularly in the context of uh, conflicts like the, the war in Syria about whether the environmental uh, contribution to those sorts of conflicts might not be and that might not be insignificant and so the human the commission for the human future was really brought together for people to to discuss these interdependent interrelated threats and to find those common narrative themes that might be solutions that will help, help us to contend with the big questions and to the big risks that we all face uh, into the future gosh it's huge and food security was one of the first focal issues uh, the Commission has focused on. That's right. So the Commission itself, uh, were the 2017 was this ANU group and that led in 2019 to the, the formal formation of the Commission for the Human Future. The Commission sits outside the ANU but has a definitely a, a, a relationship with ANU. It's a messy one but it's, it's actually quite a constructive way for us to be existing. Um, the, uh, the other organisation that, that has played a significant role in the development of the Commission is the Australia 21 Institute that many people will have heard of. Um, and so our first uh, meeting was to bring together people who were expert in a variety of catastrophic and existential risks and to look for the common themes that can emerge from, from those, those variable and quite diverse uh, challenges. What were the common themes that emerged from that first report? The common themes were using science seems to be quite sensible. So actually understanding the research, understanding the literature, and that means a broad and fairly inclusive uh, use of the word science. So that's recognising that different knowledge systems have a lot of merit and particularly an appreciation, I think, of Indigenous uh, knowledge and Indigenous culture can inform a significant amount of our scientific understanding uh, of the, the risks that we, we face. So science is good for us. That, that one of the major political challenges we face is this short-termism and our incapacity to look and plan in a policy direction uh, towards a longer term. Even five years seems like a long time in politics. And some of these issues that we're facing are playing out over years and decades. And so being able to shift that focus to a longer-term view would be tremendously helpful. So using science, taking a longer-term view, they were two of the really big messages that I took away from that first report. And so then our plan was to work our way through some of the other 
threats and challenges that have been faced. And we have, as you know, uh, done a roundtable discussion on food, and there are two reports that have come from that food security discussion. We've also had a conversation about climate change. Now, our climate change report is not yet published, but it's certainly underway. Gosh, I look forward to that one. Uh, you and I were both sort of involved with the panel on food security, um, and, it, and it was in, it was an interesting process, <laughs> uh, not least because it drew together such a wide ranging group of people with quite different views, but who shared a very uh, a really deep sense or common or common concern or even frustration about our food system uh, and where it's heading. How do you see the strategic food policy report making a contribution, and who is it primarily intended for? Well, so there were two reports, one which was, I think, a reasonable summary of the conversation that we had, um, albeit from the position of the, the writers of the Commission of the Human Future. Um, and I, I know that that didn't reflect the full, full diversity of the, the conversation that, that took place. Um, and so that, that, I think, is a really interesting read for people who are thinking about uh, food policy and food security. The second report was really focused on policymakers, and, and that's actually focused at a government level or on, on a think tank level, um, on an advocacy level, getting people to really engage with, uh, with the sorts of solutions that are out there for, for food systems and, and particularly looking at food system resilience um, in a changing climate. Mm -hmm. um, one of the key messages of that policy report was to call for greater coordination of what it refers to as the sprawling governance of Australia's food system, uh, the policy for which is currently spread across some 14 or more government departments and agencies and aren't really connected through a central authority, legislation or even a ministerial portfolio. Do you see the report as helping to join DOTS or help build coalitions to support work already underway in key environmental and public health areas? I think this is why I see it as a microcosm uh, or a really nice example. It's not really a microcosm, but it's a nice example of these complex interdependent issues. Um, the, that, that there, was, there was some discussion about the need to have a department for food. It wasn't there. And, and I, you know, I think so many of the times we talk about, about complex interdependent or wicked problems, we find ourselves uh, really facing the, the, the knowledge silos, the fact that, you know, that uh, health is just put in the Department of Health and that the transport relationship or how we move around as humans is, is excluded from the health dynamic. And I, I think about that a lot as a cardiologist, that nutrition and the cities that we live in and the transport that we use uh, all are related, really significant related hu uh, health factors. Uh, so for food, again, the same thing. We've got multiple government departments or at a university, multiple different uh, parts of the campus that have influence and have, have relationships with food policy and with the food system. How do we bring together these complex dynamics into a, an effective and cohesive conversation? There was quite a lot of int really interesting discussion about whether to create a department for food or whether you have a food in all policy uh, approach. I mean, I, I think this really adds further weight to that conversation that we really need to have about being able to have broad, multidisciplinary, transdisciplinary discussions at a university or an academic level, at a society and at a community level, and particularly at a government level, if we're going to solve these complicated problems. I know when we think about climate change, it's easy to put climate change into the Department of Energy or Environment, but in fact, climate change policy probably needs to be in all elements of government as well. And we're going to have the same sort of dynamic if we were thinking about writing 
a similar sort of report for, for climate change, I've no doubt we would come up with a similar conclusion that it needs to be in all, all elements of government. And so, well, hopefully what out this report does is provoke that discussion. I'm not sure how much will actually influence government decision-making, but um, I know that we can we can provoke a couple of discussions and that's a really interesting and useful, hopefully, hopefully useful contribution to make. I'm sure it is, and I'm sure it'll link up with things like the um, Obesity Coalition and from the recommendations for eight key actions to tackle the obesity pandemic, which include action on active transport, So, and that, of course, relates to climate change. Um, okay, back to the report. It describes seven policy challenges and, seven policy recommend, and, and offers seven policy recommendations to build a more healthy, sustainable, economically viable and resilient food system. Uh, what are some of the key recommendations of the report that perhaps resonate most strongly with you personally? So, look, I think there are a range of different parts of the recommendations, and, and there are really there were there were seven fairly solid recommendations, and it's probably worthwhile just going through them uh, very briefly. Firstly, a fit for purpose food policy governance to drive the for national food reforms, the policies and programs with a view to assigning ministerial and senior official responsibility for a national food policy framework. And so that's that. Let's put food across into each element of government. Let's implement, number two, was implementing a new national program to recognise soil as a national asset. And I, I get the sense that there's about to be a little wave of climate change discussion around soil and how well, how important that is in, in decarbonising our environment. And so, so again, this in, interdependence of problem solving is really important. To incent number three was to incentivise and enable urban and peri-urban food production through financial support and, and revised regulatory structures to improve national and local food security. And isn't that interesting, again, in the context of climate change and particularly in the context of the coronavirus pandemic, uh, about that need to really work on your local food resilience. Number four, supporting and encouraging and protecting small and family-owned food producers, processes and suppliers through regulatory reforms, industry protections and support and innovate business models and solutions in the food system. Again, this is thinking that, that food, it's all very well to try and design a food system, but we really have to think about how the food system runs. And so a move towards a smaller business and family-owned, making sure that we're looking after the employment uh, and the financial security of our communities. Number five was enabling efficient, transparent and equitable water utilisation. And water, of course, is in, in the list of things that we can talk about in terms of catastrophic threats to human futures. At the moment, we've got a, a lovely amount of, of water. It's raining outside in Canberra today. Uh, and when I contrast this with last year, I, I'm really it's quite a stark contrast with an extraordinarily deep drought uh, and towns without water. We really need to change our attitude to water and to valuing that as a resource is tremendously important. And it's tremendously important because water is an essential part of life, but it's also tremendously important for our, our food security. Number six was to drive nationwide transition towards increased availability, accessibility and affordability of nutritious, safe and whole foods and eating safe, healthy eating practices. So there was a really interesting set of conversations about what we should or shouldn't eat. And I try personally as a practising doctor not to be particularly prescriptive in that. I think there's a tremendous amount of research that says that, that the less processed our food is, the better it is for us. And I think there was broad consensus on that. 
Um, and so that, that's, that, I think that's a really solid recommendation. Number seven on the final recommendation was to establish a national food, fisheries and agriculture knowledge program, including strategic vision and central coordination of domestic research agenda, funding support for research efforts and upscaled international engagement with the export of research and technology. And again, a really, uh, I think, a, a fantastic recommendation that's come from that report to, to engage locally, federally and internationally to improve our food system resilience. Yeah, thank you for that. And there's so much great work going on in that healthy and sustainable food systems agenda area, isn't there? Um, um, so I think that's a, a very comprehensive summary. <laughs> um, and I, I know personally, having grown up on a farm, the whole issue of land conservation, climate proofing and anti-desertification with all these extreme events and extreme, extreme drought, extreme flooding, where do our soils go? It's uh, viscerally near and present, isn't it? Um, I was going to ask, yeah, um, I, was, I was going to ask if you had any other uh, reflections about the report or key take-home messages you'd just like to share. Um, I, I think my one of the, the, the really powerful messages from the report is the interdependence and interrelated issues here that you can't can't really address food security without considering climate change, without considering the environment, without considering biodiversity loss, water resilience. And really going back to core human elements of human behaviour and how, how we share the resources that are on the planet. Um, and so, I, so I'm hoping that comes through in the report and it certainly comes through in the, the ongoing work for the Commission for the Human Future. Okay, so the, the, the report was prepared pretty much in the early days of COVID when we didn't know how long, it was, how long the journey was going to be. And now with COVID six months on, food has become even hotter on the agenda and there are many incredible groups providing food support and relief in really collaborative and innovative ways, promoting urban agriculture and more. Do you see COVID creating some positive disruptions that, um, or opportunities for our food system and narratives about it um, that we just might not have expected pre-COVID? Uh, look, I think we can say that generally, can't we? I mean, I, I, I've certainly said that um, from a climate change perspective. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll just reflect on the climate change perspective, a story I've told a few times. But I think in February, after the summer experience and the fires that we had, which were particularly devastating through, um, through New South Wales <laughs> in its entirety, but particularly in this southeastern corner, um, that it, it was an emotionally challenging period. And at the end of that summer period, for, for so many of us, worried about the future of the world through the lens of climate change, uh, the need for really seriously urgent action is obvious. We, we need to rapidly decarbonise. We need to do that as fast as humanly possible. And the more I thought about that, the more I recognised the, the extraordinary barriers, the, the, you know, the inherent carbon footprint that is present in almost all aspects of all, all elements of what we do each day. And I remember thinking it's a little bit like sitting on the edge of the cliff, very much, you know, hoping that, that something will come past to give you a, a safe passage to the ground. And I think coronavirus essentially threw us off a cliff. It really put up for discussion all of these things that previously were really difficult to discuss. So things like uh, using aeroplanes for travel, which I had a lot of difficulty giving up, um, but, of course, almost overnight or within a month or two of the coronavirus pandemic, we've all stopped flying. And, and for many of us looking towards the future, 
it could be a very long time before we use particularly international uh, aviation again. Um, and so that's a, that's a really significant cognitive shift. It's a behaviour shift and it will be one that resonates. On a food basis, I, I think the example you've just given is a superb one, that, that our, our dependence on global trade uh, to underpin the nature of our food system um, has been demonstrated uh, through the coronavirus pandemic. And I'm, I've been interested in supply chains. Uh, I've been working with a friend on supply chains in uh, looking at the supply chain vulnerabilities for medicines in Australia um, and recognising that those supply chains for, for things like pharmaceuticals and other medical supplies are really so much more complex than we see in our day-to-day -day, you know, use uh, in our, in our, as a doctor in our prescribing habits. We don't recognise where those drugs come from and how they get here. And I think similarly in our food experience, when we go to the supermarket, we're buying things and we don't always have a good appreciation of the full supply chain experience uh, that surrounds those, those foods. We've almost certainly had a better appreciation of that with the coronavirus pandemic just because of the supply chain disruption. And then, of course, the, the panic buying and the things that were associated with that. What we're going to unfortunately see, I think, is as financial insecurity becomes more significant in Australia, uh, the need for, for communities to work together to support each other in food resilience will be really important. Um, and so some really extraordinarily exciting uh, local um, uh, development programs, um, and I'm particularly proud, I guess, of the things that I see happening in Canberra, uh, some local local gardens and local food production that's taking place to really foster that community engagement. And those sorts of programs, partly it's about food, but one of the exciting elements of it is really bringing people together, working together and working together towards a common cause. And we know when we work together on, with those sorts of projects that we talk to each other. When we talk to each other, we can start to have conversations about difficult difficult topics and that, that that often will translate to a, a subtle shifts in our politics and the way that we relate to each other. So there's so many elements in way, which we win, or so many methods, by, what mechanisms by which we win through that uh, that whole process. It's really exciting. Um, you know, I, I don't think I would have wished to have a pandemic. I think it's been a disaster for so many people, and I'm particularly cognizant of the employment and training consequences for, for younger generations. I think it's a really challenging time to be a 25-year-old but I also think we've got this extraordinary opportunity for transformative change, things that were not on the table previously, things that were really difficult to imagine, imagine shifting, which are now actively up for discussion. You know, conversations about work, conversations about economics, conversations about governance, all of these things which are serious drivers for the catastrophic and existential threats that we face, and yet they are up for conversation. You know, do we need to, do we need to work... 40 hours a week, can we work 20 hours a week? Should we all be spending a little bit more time with our friends and family? Um, can we provide adequate social and, and financial support to our community to allow us to do that in a way that, that gives us all a better sense of well-being and improves our health? Uh, these are questions we really couldn't have actively asked, I think, a year ago and certainly weren't thinking about in the way that we are now. That's what transformative change probably looks like. You know, very few of us have lived through a period like this um, and we, we read a little bit about it, but these sorts of really radical changes in the way that humans behave don't occur very often. 
Um, and I think we're at the beginning of that process. I suspect that that process takes years. Um, you know, it's hard to fast forward through this, but but I and I think we've already seen significant behaviour and, and cultural change. But there's also this lag through which the changes become a normal process. Um, so I'm I'm sort of I'm cautiously optimistic that we've got opportunities for for ongoing significant social and transformative change over the next couple of years. Um, you've you've mentioned about the opportunities for conversations and connections that local and regional food projects and activities have. Um, COVID's obviously having a huge impact on our health in a variety of ways, on our health and wellbeing and, and also loneliness and mental health and so forth. Can you comment as a, perhaps as an individual or, or as, a, as a clinician on the sorts of impacts on health and wellbeing that you're generally observing as a result of COVID? Yeah, um, so I, I think firstly we, we've been pretty lucky with, with actual coronavirus here in Canberra and, and certainly compared to my friends and family in Melbourne, I'm very mindful that we've really got off very, very lightly um, and uh, extremely grateful to the Victorians for the work that they've put in to protect the rest of the country. Um, that's been quite extraordinary. What, what I, we've seen is this transition. So in the ACT, we've been fairly protected from the virus. We haven't had any significant community spread. We haven't had that many infections, so it hasn't changed or overwhelmed our health system. Um, the major things that took place in the community that I'm in were that a large number of people found themselves working from home. And so the schooling and working from home period uh, was, was a significant one and a big transition for people moving away from the office. Um, Financial insecurity is most definitely affected uh, parts of the community and so we do see that increase in stress associated with that and that can have all sorts of ongoing health effects from both mental and physical health. It's been interesting watching people work from home. Um, my, again, it's very subjective, I, don't, I haven't seen a lot of quantitative data on this yet, but my subjective experience is that uh, people seem to be more more happy working in their own home environment. Being at home seems to be a good thing for, for many people, not for everybody, but for many people. Um, so the, that family engagement has some potential advantages. Um, the health issues uh, I've seen in my, my, my population of people that I see, I've seen most people have tried to stay active and doing exercise, but activity no doubt has dropped. All of that incidental exercise associated with moving into and out of an office has gone and that, that often practically translates to a couple of thousand steps each day for people and that that has health impacts. It has impacts on our fitness and on our other metabolic indices and I, 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 think, I think so many people have put on a couple of kilos this year. I really think that's been a dominant theme. And I, and, I, and I think about, the more I think about, I think it's about five kilos on average for the year. Um, and so that definitely has happened. But, um, you know, the, the health consequences of that will, will go on for a little longer. You know, we, we will see this change in exercise and activity resonate um, for, for some time to come yet. Um, and I think the mental health effects will probably continue into next year. I, I just think we've got, we've got a, a really interesting period ahead watching Victoria come out of lockdown, the mental health impacts of being at home and isolated for a long period of time, that, that, that pro, the processing of that experience will take a lot longer. We, we know that from, from other traumatic events like bushfires. And uh, come next March when JobKeeper and other support systems change, it'll be even more dramatic, one would imagine. 
Um, that's a, that's an interesting lead into um, in a recent post budget podcast. You offered some really powerful insights and perspectives on on the on the current moment. You've spoken about a number of them already. Uh, in that podcast, you spoke about the importance of care, the caring sector, social housing, and the importance of valuing dignity of everyone and and, and recognizing everyone. Uh, but you also spoke about. Um, uh, the budget is something of a missed opportunity for some new conversations, but there were positive things that came out of it. One of the what you also said that um, COVID show COVID has shown how we as a community are ready to do really extraordinary things and want vision and change on climate and more. And you've alluded to that uh, in the conversation already. I thought that was a really beautiful summary of how there's been this real coming together of energy and and new conversations and. Um, concern to help each other, which is a great energy to build on. Um, but you also spoke about uh, the potential political or civil dangers on the horizon, given the possible dissonance between community values, concerns and aspirations for change and the apparent deafness by the government in some areas of the budget, uh, perhaps with regard to climate and equity. Um, would you like to comment or elaborate on that, on, on that latter point? I'll reinforce the positive messaging first. And the positive messing, messaging um, really comes from the fact that I think there's a tremendous appetite for transformative change. I don't think I'm the only person who wants to see climate action. You know, most of the research that's done says that it's around 80% of Australians do want serious policy change on climate uh, for, to, to address climate change uh, as, a, as a serious threat to Australia's future. Um, and we have this then extraordinary opportunity. We've been we've been disrupted. The disruption has taken place, and so so that budget I think is a terrible missed opportunity to really invest in transformative change. To think imaginatively about how what a budget is for and how it can be used and how it can be used to foster and and really encourage. Um, the, the a, a well-being of community and so I've got a particular interest I think in the transition towards a well-being economy that most definitely is something that I would like to see us explore more actively um, and what would that mean it means that we invest in caring for each other we invest in caring for our community we invest in in preventative health care so that means we invest in facilitating active transport in spending time with nature in improved nutrition and much better social support we stop putting people in situations where they're under such extraordinary financial pressure that they can't have secure housing that they don't have secure access to uh, to to entertainment and to to meaningful work in whatever way shape or form that takes place and that they don't have access to adequate nutrition and we know all of those things then resonate through their health and increased health services requirement required. And so you wanted me to comment on the potential pitfalls. The, the polarisation that we see is the other end of the spectrum. So on the one side of the spectrum, you see this extraordinary coalition of people coming together. We've, we've acted to try and suppress a, a virus that we could see threatening our community. And I think that narrative is easily transformed to say, well, if we can work together to, to, uh, to suppress this virus, let's work together to confront the, this, the elephant in the room, which is the major threat of climate change, which is, I think, coming at us with an increasing velocity. And so we can use the skills that we've developed with the coronavirus pandemic to confront the climate change disaster that is unfolding. 
And you, you see that, uh, I think, nicely demonstrated through the recent election results, both in New Zealand and here in the ACT, where people are really voting for transformative change. They're voting for new ways of doing things. They don't want the old normal. They'd like to see a new way of doing things in the future. And that's an extraordinary thing to see, and it should give, I think, some uh, hope and inspiration to a new wave of politicians who are interested in doing things differently. The other side of the spectrum is increasing polarisation, and we see that in, in parts of the American political system, but we also see that playing out with the political dynamics in Australia, uh, with the, 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 the national narrative around uh, the Victorian response to suppression of the, the coronavirus pandemic. I think in time we're all going to be extraordinarily impressed by the, the work that the Andrews government did on that uh, virus uh, suppression. And yet the, the federal politics and the, the political dynamic of that really seem to enjoy the polarisation. And so what we see in, those, in the polarised politics end of the dynamic is that we're not coming together as a community. We're not being grateful for the work that other people are doing and that anger grows and people get aggressive and they start to fight each other. And so, so that's what I was alluding to in, in that podcast discussion. When you put people under financial stress, so you start to remove some of the social security uh, blanket that, that cares for people through a really difficult period, and you've got this political dialogue, which is not particularly, uh, doesn't, doesn't build community, but actually undermines it. <clears throat> you have, what we know that is that that will commonly lead not to a, a revolution that brings the community together, but to, uh, towards an increase in community uh, dissent and debate. Um, and often that can be quite destructive. And so, so I think that's the potential risk we run at the moment is that we're heading to that end of the spectrum um, in various parts of the country and we've got these bubbles where community are working together, places like yeah, the federal seats that have voted in independence, like Warringah uh, and the federal seat of Indi, small jurisdictions like the ACT and local government areas where people are working together. Um, and so we'll see this polarisation of communities that will care for each other and communities that are really pulling each other apart. Mm. And, uh, we, and, and as we look for new industries that are regenerative and sustainable, caring for the people who are transitioning from old industries is, is a part of that narrative, isn't it? And, um, but I think a lot of people want to see a bit more action on conservation and land management and landscape planning. Absolutely. And so there's all these opportunities to have have, you know, I, I don't like the phrase win-win, but they're, win, they're, they're wins for the planet in that we can improve the environment, the local environment and the global environment, uh, and we can also improve the health and well-being of the community, both through financial support and activity and also through community-building uh, activities. And I, I sound utopian. I often wonder, oh, gosh, I'm sounding way too positive. But I think, in, you know, in practice this actually really does play out, that when we work together, when we play together, uh, and when we share a common narrative about caring for the planet, that, that really we can uh, see things develop in a, in a constructive way, in a sort of thing that actually builds the human future that we may all want. People like Christiana Figueres, uh, she's a renowned climate champion, but she, she believes that, you know, s s we all need stubborn optimism at the moment. Um, you know, anger, anger can sink into despair and make us powerless to make change, but anger that evolves into conviction is unstoppable and collective. So uh, let's hope that's where we're heading. Yeah. So I think we should all take a tremendous amount of hope from New Zealand and from the ACT elections, and that's regardless of the side of the political fence that you sit on. 
I really think that those uh, inspirational uh, election results for for communities working together with a with a new vision, not with the old vision, with a new vision. And interestingly, uh, women are playing a very key role in a lot of the leadership, such as yourself, uh, Ada Greta. What can you comment on in the rural health sector? You know, there's farmers for climate action, there's doctors for climate action. Would you like to just comment on your observations about the role of women in some of those big change movements? Um, look, again, I think that's really interesting. And I, I certainly I've been in, uh, involved in quite a lot of groups where, where there's gender diversity um, and there's been a number of groups where the gender dominance is female. Um, I think women come together around climate change. They do tend to care or, or perhaps focus on the community perspective. Um, and I, look, I, I've given it thought. I, I probably don't understand it well enough to really comment in detail about why that's the case. Um, but what I do see in terms of the conversations that I've had is that that that, um, that collaborative style of discussion, uh, uh, the open listening um, and and constructive criticism, the potential to work as a team rather than as a group of individuals. Um, might be more common maybe with a group of women. Maybe that's just because I'm female. Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm impressed by the power of bringing women together and um, I am a member of the uh, climate, uh, the Women's Climate Congress here in Canberra, um, which is hoping to really foster these conversations, groups of women coming together. You know, one of my favourite groups that I'm not part of is the Knitting Nanas, really powerful group that have helped significantly in stopping the the fracking and the gas development in the north part of New South Wales, really inspirational group of women. And I think when you see, you know, when you see grandmothers out uh, protesting, I think it's a really powerful message um, to, to everybody that you're normalising, uh, that taking a stand, that it's a, it's a very powerful thing to do, it's a very normal thing to do, it's a, def a defence of our children sort of a, an approach. Um, and I, and I, I think it's a powerful message for our community. Lovely. Thank you. Uh, just wrapping up, perhaps, uh, I'd love to hear your final thoughts or comments from two perspectives. <laughs> um, firstly, perhaps as a doctor, uh, with regard to human health and a healthier food system, what might be your top uh, two to three low fruit change priorities, you know, actions that governments, individuals, communities could tackle right now? Look, I'd start with um, talking to people about food. That's probably where I would personally start. Um, you know, food literacy is an important part of making healthy choices in terms of the food that we eat. And, and I think we probably undersell in, in the medical profession how important the food choice might be in terms of the, the health benefits. And so, so, you know, programs like putting food into schools, uh, even just cooking school lunches or having students involved at a primary school level in the production of food, so understanding where our food comes from, growing food. I love the kitchen gardens that are emerging in most primary schools, showing children how long it takes to grow a carrot, how long it takes to grow uh, lettuce and actually getting an appreciation of the life cycle of the foods that we consume and we often throw away. And so I think really getting an understanding of how much work goes into food production is a powerful message that can't be undersold. And I think then a food appreciation through, through learning a little bit about nutrition and cooking at an early age. 
Um, when I talk to my patients about food, I always start from the fact that I'm tremendously biased by a strong food enjoyment. I really enjoy food. And I, I hope that translates through to an improved health perspective. Um, and there's, you know, there's a little the Mediterranean diet as a reasonable piece of advice from a cardiovascular perspective. And one of the potential advantages is there may be some food enjoyment in there. So, so food enjoyment is probably an important part. And so getting a breadth of palate uh, and food appreciation at a young age is a good idea. So that, that would be the first thing that I'd do is try and food, improve food literacy, both for production and then, and then enjoyment um, at an early age. Looking to the bigger picture, <laughs> as the highly, highly experienced, uh, wide-ranging thinker and doer that you are, and if you think uh, of healthy people and sustainable, more resilient and biodiverse landscapes, if you were given a blue-sky budget and a mandate for the next 10 years, what priorities would shape your vision and how would you style and go about change? Look, that's that's part of the challenge, isn't it? That, that these problems, climate change, biodiversity, saving the environment, looking at water and food security, thinking about how to stop uh, nuclear war, these problems are rapidly overwhelming. And so for many of us, we look at it and think, oh, well, you know, that's hard, that's too hard, that's definitely too complex. And, and moreover, even if I thought I had some good ideas, how can what I do, how can that actually change things? And so I've been preoccupied by this dynamic of, of global change and, and local action. And, and so if I was in charge, I think the dominant threat that we face is climate change. I, I really believe that quite strongly. I think that the science is concerning. I think the velocity of change is probably a little faster than we see in the IPCC reports. Looking forward to the next report coming out shortly. Um, I think we should put almost all of our attention into that. Um, at the moment, the Australian prediction is that by 2100, uh, and this is, this is government data, it will be at four degrees, and that challenges habitability on the continent that we love, um, in parts of the city that we enjoy being in, in large parts of our landscape that we valued for a long time. And so if I was in charge, I'd make sure that narrative was spread and that we actually appreciate the true challenge of what we're up against, that that, that threat is its not a not a conceptual risk, it's a real um, and very significant threat to, to our human future. And so I also think we can make significant changes to combat that, which improve our health and well-being, that improve our societal function. Um, I, would, I, would, I think we should be exploring well-being economy and I think we should put a price on carbon and I think both of those things should be discussed more frequently than they are at the moment I think working, as I said, the global versus local tension, you know, we make all of these changes easier by looking after each other, and that's what we've learned from the coronavirus pandemic. And so fostering local community engagement. I'm fascinated by the local regenerative energy projects that we see in places like Yakandanda, Hepburn Springs, and popping up all around the country now. That that's not just about transition to renewable energy. That's actually about fostering communities working together. And I think that's how we'll see meaningful change. So I would put, I would put that um, through the, as many parts of regional and rural Australia as are open to it, um, and I'd really, really get that rolled out as fast as possible because I think that's one of the most effective mechanisms by which we will find ourselves working together to combat the, the threat that is most likely to change our future. Connection and inclusion building onto new and, new and different enterprises and 
caring economies. Rapidly decarbonise, protect the environment. We really we need to look after every every tree is at this point sacred. We really need to look after our biodiversity. Again, we seriously underestimate the value of the natural environment that we have left um, and we need to really work towards protecting that. And community engagement is the key, I think, to really seeing that achieved. So they're, they're my, my three bits of advice. <laughs> they put me in charge. Yeah. Thank you very, very much, Hannah Greta. That's uh, inspirational and uh, a pretty good roadmap to me. <laughs> Dr. Anna Greta Hunter, among her many and inspirational roles, is the Chair of the Commission for the Human Future. To learn more about the Commission, get involved or support its work, please visit their website at humanfuture.net where you can also download the report, The Need for Strategic Food Policy in Australia, that we've been discussing today, along with other reports and resources from the Commission. Thank you, Anna Greta. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you today. I really enjoyed the discussion. I hope your listeners find it enjoyable too. Thank you so much for inviting me today. Thanks for listening. I hope this conversation offered some nourishing food for thought. To listen to more episodes of Nourishing Matters to Chew On, head to Foodswell's podcast page at foodswell.org.au backslash nourishing or you can subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay in touch via Instagram at Nourishing Matters or Foodswell Australia. As this is a new podcast, we'd really value your support. So please give us a rating or review in your favourite podcast app so other people can find us too. Nourishing Matters to Chew On is proud to be on the Climactic Network of Podcasts and part of a collective of podcasters dedicated to inspiring positive action around climate change. Check out the other great podcasts on the Climactic Network at www.climactic.fm.